I've never been one to have difficulty falling asleep. I'm certainly not one to count sheep in order to fall asleep. It's never been a problem for me. I basically stay awake as long as I want, sometimes later than I should, but then I go to sleep. When I go to bed, I go to sleep. That's just what it does for me. When I climb into bed, I go to sleep, and that's the end of it. But I know that that's not the case for everyone. I have extended family members, as you do. I know that there's people in this room that are employed in this field to help people be able to fall asleep. And there has been tons and tons and tons of research on this subject. Not just the subject, I found out this week, of falling asleep or difficulty falling asleep, but the specific subject of the phenomenon of counting sheep in order to fall asleep. Asleep. This was published in the New York Times. This is February of 2010. The reason people count sheep as opposed to bluebirds or sailboats is uncertain. Do you do that? Anyway, let's move on. Some authorities think that it has to do with the tallying system that was once devised by shepherds in ancient Britain. But there is no question that the, fa- the phrase has entered our language And its meaning is clear enough that the sheer monotony of the task of counting sheep is meant to lull you to sleep. But does it work? Scientists at Oxford University put it to the test. There are people at a university who have time to do the testing of you counting sheep. And this was their study. In their study, which appeared in the Journal of Behavioral Research and Therapy, two sleep researchers recruited insomniacs and then split them into groups. They monitored them as they tried different techniques for falling asleep on various nights. What they found was that the subjects took slightly longer to fall asleep on the nights they were instructed to distract themselves by counting sheep. Or if they were given no instructions at all, they fell asleep on average 20 minutes sooner than they did on other nights. So those of you who are wondering if tonight you should count sheep before you fall asleep, don't. The English comedian Mr. Bean did a spoof on this one time. I found it this week. I'd not seen it before. He was imitating the struggle of what it looks like to fall asleep at night. And as he is there on the other side of the bed, he's rolling back and forth. And on the other side of the bed, he pulls out a poster-sized picture of a flock of sheep. And so he's looking and staring at the picture and counting them. And in Mr. Bean's fashion, he doesn't actually say words, but you know that he's saying words. He's making uh, noises with his mouth and different things like that to let you know what he's doing. He's counting the sheep, and then he has this aha moment where he uh, then goes through and he goes across the x-axis and counts all the sheep there, and then he goes down the y-axis and counts all the sheep there. He pulls out his calculator out of his dresser drawer, out of his nightstand, types in the two numbers, hits enter, gets a result of the equation, and then immediately drops and falls asleep because that's what he needed to know if he just knew the answer to the question then he would be able to fall asleep right maybe maybe my name is pastor milo we'll begin this morning uh, with today's lesson on counting sheep We're in Matthew chapter 18, and as is often the the case with the Gospels, when Jesus is teaching, it's not really about counting sheep. There's a whole lot more going on. So if you've got your Bibles, and we ask you to bring your Bibles each week, will you turn to Matthew chapter 18? 
We ask you to bring your Bibles each Sunday. We ask you to bring something to write with, and we ask you to bring something to write on. We want you to be prepared for what God has to say to us today. Most of you receive our midweek email newsletter, and on that newsletter I sent you this week, you'd call it Randall Life. And if you get our Randall Life newsletter you got this week, I asked you not to just be prepared by bringing your Bible and bringing your pen and bringing something to write on, but prepare yourself for what we were going to be tackling today with this message. And pray for me as I approach this text. Because this sermon is not just about, this text is not just about counting sheep, but it is about the flock and caring for the flock. And this is a sermon that's actually about church conflict and church discipline and is ultimately all about the restoration of damaged and broken people. People like you and people like me through the unending power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we talk about conflict in the church, or if I say church conflict, it often stirs up memories in each of us of different church rifts and splits and divides. Sometimes those have been over serious doctrinal issues, but other times they're over tremendously trivial matters. I remember being at a church business meeting in the first church that I was employed at. I got a paycheck from. I was a part-time interim intern. in the youth ministry. And I don't know how it happened, but I was there in what seemed like a normal procedural vote for something that was happening in the church, and the room suddenly divided and split in two. People were shouting at each other. They're calling each other names in the middle of a business meeting. And and what do you think it was? What was the issue that would have people screaming and yelling at each other? Where did this conflict all come to a head? It was over the vote of the the kitchen was about to purchase a new ice machine. And we needed to decide whether the ice machine had cubed ice or crushed ice. Ridiculous. I think you'd agree with me that there was a whole lot more going on in that church than cubed ice or crushed ice. I don't think the conflict had anything to do with ice at all. Something deeper lie there under the surface. There was... I just realized this, there's an iceberg under the surface. So it actually did have to do with ice. I didn't see that one coming either. Okay. Disagreement in the church between brothers and sisters in Christ. Know this, friends. We are flawed, damaged human beings. Conflict will happen. Conflict will happen in the church. Disagreements will happen in the church. Put it in your calendar, put it in your phone, put it in your day planner, whatever you need to do. Understand, conflict is going to come, but when it comes, you have a choice to make. Will you go to war or will you gently restore? That's where we're headed this morning. My sermon title is probably a dead giveaway as to where I want us to land on this. Our sermon title today is to gently restore. Matthew chapter 18, 10 to 20 is today's passage, and I believe it's going to build a very strong case this morning to be a people, to be a church that is committed to a process that always desires to gently restore when it comes to resolving conflict in a biblical 
manner. In fact, today's passage uses the word church two different times and are the only times in the four Gospels to use the word church. And it comes in this context of conflict. Gently restore. Matthew 18, chapter 10. We're going to begin reading in verse 10 this morning. We're picking up from last week's text where we learned uh, how you earn the title How do you earn the title of greatness, true greatness in the kingdom of heaven? That's the question that the disciples were asking Jesus. And Jesus tells his disciples, he said, the person that emulates the best, the true greatness in the kingdom of heaven is a person who has the faith like a child. That will be the person that is truly great in the kingdom of heaven. He even goes further to say that followers of Christ should be in the process of cutting away anything Anything, any earthly activities symbolized by cutting away of the arms or the feet or the legs or earthly ambition symbolized by gouging out the eyes. says, cut away all of these things. Anything that would keep you from having a childlike, unassuming faith in Jesus Christ. So let's pick up in verse 10 from where he left off. See that you do not despise any of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. So these little ones here, what is being referred to, these little ones here are the ones that Jesus gave his life for as a perfect sacrifice to save. These little ones here is not a reference to little ones as in physical age of a child. That is not what's being talked about here. But the little ones being discussed here are the little ones that are part of the church, the big C church of those who would follow Jesus with their lives. He says, see to it that you do not despise these little ones, that you do not harbor anger in your heart towards these little ones, that you would not wish harm to befall these little ones. So be careful, friends, when you consider the choice that you have before you. Be careful when conflict arises and comes up and you have the opportunity to engage and type in the nuclear codes that it would be for you to begin blowing up the relationship. Will you go to war or will you gently restore? Jesus says here is that every follower of Christ, every believer who calls on the name of the Lord has angels in heaven ready to go to battle to protect, ready to take care of these little children. Every time that we see an angel represented in Scripture, what do we see around that angel? We see total and complete destruction everywhere he looks. Either everyone is dead that's in the radius around that angel, or the ones who are in his presence are lying flat on their face, prostrate, terrified in fear of the messenger of the Holy Father God. If you're here this morning, you have a choice to make. Will you go to war Or will you gently restore? Let's continue on looking at verse 11. Wait a minute. When you look down in your Bibles, some of you are finding, wait a minute. My Bible goes from verse 10 to verse 12. There is no verse 11 for me to look at. How is that possible? How does it just jump from verse 10 to 12? It's been fairly thoroughly documented that this verse that we have in some of our Bibles as verse 11 has actually been inserted here from a different text. 
from somewhere else rather than the original text that was written out by Matthew the Apostle as he is writing down these words. Matthew the tax collector, as he is documented, he did not write what we have, some of us, as verse 11. Verse 11 is actually lifted from and pulled over the gospel of Luke. Luke chapter, uh, I don't have the verse in front of me. Go to the next slide because I have it in the slides. I don't have it in front of me. Luke chapter 19 verse 10. It says this. For the Son of Man came to save that which was lost. For the Son of Man came to save that which is lost. Now, not all of your Bibles have that. The reason that's behind that, I agree with the reason that's there. But I also understand why those English translators, as they were putting scriptures together, why they took a look and they said, I get this is the essence of what's being communicated here. So I think that I want to make sure that the readers hear this. For the Son of Man came to save that which is lost. So before you pull the pin and throw the grenade, before you activate the launch codes, don't forget that the entire mission of God. The entire good news story of the gospel that is available to us through the New Testament as it's going out and the story that we have to tell all the nations is the story of the redeeming and restoration work of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. For the Son of Man came to save that which is lost. His mission His mission here on earth, while he is in human form, was always for the purpose of seeking and saving that which is lost. Isn't that wonderful? Which leads us to counting sheep. Looks like one of them has gotten lost. Let's read together. Look at verse 12. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? This what do you think question can be inserted as an overarching question because he's talking to Peter and the rest of the apostles, the disciples as they're standing around them. It's the same type of question that he's presenting. He says, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep, one of them wanders away. And then continuing on, what do you think if he finds it? If I... Truly tell you, wouldn't he be happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off? What do you think? In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Now we do need to be clear that word perish here, when we're talking in reference to this passage, is not talking about an eternal damnation that we see other passages of Scripture that we would be talking about, particularly if it was the author John was writing this. But no, Matthew is talking about perishing in the sense of being away from the rest of the flock, being in harm's way because they were away from the rest of the flock. In the same way your Father in heaven is not willing, would not will it, would not desire for any one of these to be away from the rest of the flock, to perish, to come into harm's way. So if a little one wanders off, that's the question here at hand. If a little one wanders off, what do you think? If a little one wanders off, what do we do? Where do we go? How do we respond? And he says, why don't we look at how the father responds. He gives us the story of the shepherd and his sheep, but the whole time he's talking about the father and his little ones. So if a little one wanders off, the father always looks for his children. 
the Father always looks for His little children. Because He loves His little children. He loves each and every one of them. He knows them. He knows them by name. And so He is always there looking for them. If a little one wanders off. Let's go to the next slide, guys. He always looks for them when they wander. If a little one wanders off, the father always loves his children. He always looks for them when they wander. He doesn't just let them go and let them disappear. No, he is always looking for them. Thirdly, he always restores them when they come home. You get this picture of the shepherd with his sheep. He's out looking for the one. The 99 are safe. They're in the fold. They're being cared for. They, they are protected in the situation that they're in. He's out looking for the one. And when he finds the one, he returns home. There's great celebration. And he always restores them. He always brings them back into the flock. That's the picture that is being shown here. Because the Father always restores when he brings them home. But the other truth that's here as well, particularly demonstrated in verse 14, is he always gives them the freedom to choose. He always gives them the freedom to choose. He gives them the freedom to walk away. He gives them the freedom to turn their back on him. He would will for them to be there, but He's always giving them the freedom to choose. This is the beauty and the complexity and the irony of the Gospel. Is that that He has not programmed you and I to be robots, but He's actually given us a gift. He says, you can accept this gift of eternal life, and, and if you do so, you can walk in step with me for all of eternity. The choice is yours. A choice that you can choose to walk away from. The Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones would perish. If a little one wanders off, what does this have to do with church conflict? We get there in the next verse. Verse 15. Verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you will have won them over However, if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. If your brother or sister sins. I'm about to give you something that is pure gold, friends. It comes from passage here, it comes from scripture, and it changes our lives if we would just live by it. It's not easy. It's not what we typically would like to do. It's a process that's laid out for us in scripture, and it's our obedience that is in question. It's a process. It's more than a process, really. It's a principle for us to live by, and it's how we are to be diligent in preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's how you and I are to pursue conflict resolution and bring resolution when there is conflict. Whenever you don't like someone, whenever you get frustrated by someone, whenever you're angry at someone, this is how you're supposed to respond. Here we go. Step one. It says when your brother sins against you, go and tell that person in private. 
When your brother or your sister sins against you, go and tell that person in private. Just you, just them, in private, together, the two of you. Just you and they. He, says, he doesn't say, call your mama and, in, and then vent to her about how bad this person was to you. Call your best friend and complain to him or her about what just happened to you. He doesn't say, go and tell everyone else. He doesn't say, blast it on Facebook. He doesn't say, send them an Instagram message. He doesn't say, tweet it to your 2,317, 644,000 followers. Just go to them in private. This is your first response. You go to them and you say, hey, that thing that you did the other day, that thing that you said, it hurt me. It bothered me. I believe that you have sinned against me when you said that thing that you said. That thing that you said, it hurt me, and I think, I believe that you have sinned against me. Notice also that this verse does start with, if you have sinned, if your brother or your sister has sinned against you. So there is a check that happens here in this first step, to be able to say, I, I think that you have sinned me. I think that you have wronged me. I have perceived things in this matter. I'm going to you privately, because if a brother or a sister has sinned against you. That's my first step of action. And a lot of times that person on the receiving end of that will be like, what? Oh no, I'm so sorry. And the Spirit of God will work because God will do that and He will honor the work and honor the process that you have been obedient to and He'll stir something in their hearts and they will say, man, I did not know. I did not realize that's not at all what I meant to say. Let me correct. Let me clarify. Let me get this right. You heard that? I'm so sorry. This is what I meant to say. Will you forgive me? I'm so sorry. And you know what? By God's grace, you will be reconciled with that person. And in the end, God is what? Honored in that. Now there's another outcome. That's lane one. Lane two is this. What? When I said what, I didn't say such thing. I don't know what you're talking about. How could you be such a baby? How could you be so insensitive? How come every time someone says anything to you, you always get bothered by it? I don't even want to have this conversation. It seems like you're always picking on me. Go away. So there's step two in the process. Step one, go to them privately. Step two, grab someone else and take them with you. Now let's be clear. In grabbing someone else to take them with you, you're not necessarily grabbing someone who's already sided with you on the subject. Not someone who's like, yeah, you're right, let's go get them. Someone who will come back with you and have an unbiased character in this situation that knows both of you. He's here to say, hey, listen, when you did that thing, I told you about it the other day, and I told you that it bothered me, okay? So if you've sinned against me, and you've hurt me, and now here's a person that I've brought along to help us reconcile, to help us be mediated. And a lot of times they'll say, hey, you know what? When you said that thing the other day, you did actually give me time to think about it. And at first I thought you were just being a baby. 
First I thought you were just whining and throwing a fit. But when I sat down and I thought about it, when the Holy Spirit started working in my heart, and now that someone is here to help walk us through that, I need to respond differently in this situation. Would you please forgive me? And you guys can be reconciled. What does Jesus tell us to do in that situation? He says, celebrate. Celebrate because you've got your brother back. You've won your brother back. You've won your sister back. The body is whole again. The flock is back in the stable. Every now and then, things don't go so well. Oh, what? You're going to bring this up with me now? Oh, it's like that. Oh, you're going to team up on me now. You're going to corner me on this. I don't want to talk to either of you guys. How about you get out of my face? Go away. I'm not willing to listen to you. All right. So there's a third step. First step, you go privately with that person. Second step, you go grab someone to go with you. And then the third step is that you tell the church. You come to us. You come to a pastor. You come to someone on staff. You go to the elders. You go to this person's ministry team leader. You go to this person's small group leader and say, hey, hey, here's the situation. This is what's happened. So and so, the other day, they sinned against me in this way. Now, first things first, that staff member, that pastor, that elder, that ministry team leader had better ask the question, Did you go to them privately? Did you take someone with you? Do I need to go with you? Yes, I did. And I took someone with me and I told them in confidence and they said they were frustrated by me bringing it up at all. And when I took someone with me, they were even more frustrated that I would meet with them with someone else. And so now we're widening the circle. We're bringing others in for the purpose of being reconciled to the flock. And we're letting people know because you want to help us and pray with us so that we can work together in this. So that what? God would be honored and glorified through the process that he's given us that he is going to work in miraculous and supernatural spiritual ways. What God is teaching here will bring peace to the church will bring calmness and peace to your individual lives if we would just stick to these principles. Every now and then the church will go to them and they'll say, what? I'm so angry, I can't believe that you've even implied this. I'm not going to repent of this. And the scripture would tell you there are some reasons, good reasons to break fellowship with someone, okay? But those reasons always come as a matter of last resort. And what is the good reason? What is the reason that is given to break fellowship with someone? It is unrepentant sin. When someone is in sin and they do not repent of it and they continue to justify it and they say that they will not stop doing this sin, then it is evidence that the Spirit of God is not at work in their lives. And so Jesus, in this situation here, he explains to us, you are to treat them as a pagan, treat them as a tax collector. How do we treat pagans and how do we treat tax collectors? We're to treat them as a pagan and a tax collector. How are we supposed to treat pagans and tax collectors? Anyone? You love them. You love them. We love them, pagans. We love them. 
Jesus says you treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. So you love them and you share the gospel with them. That's what you do. That's what you do in that scenario. You would break fellowship. You would say, yes, we are no longer going to worship together because I'm enabling something in you that is causing you to continue to be in sin. You think that you're in alignment with God's Word. You think that you're in alignment with the church. And when you're living this life in sin, the most loving thing that you can do is to let them go. And as you do so, you are praying that the Spirit of God will often stir in their heart. And in this scenario, that they will come back and be reconciled to the flock. This is the principle that is outlined in Scripture. But I tell you what, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. So in light of this passage and keeping true to the text and realizing that God inspired Matthew to put this passage in line with the other passages in Matthew chapter 18, we have to actually put these paragraphs together. We have to recap. We have to actually see how God is pursuing, how the Father is pursuing the lost sheep and why these verses on conflict are in the middle of chapter 18. How the Father addresses the little ones who have wandered off. So look at it this way. If your brother or your sister sins, love your brother. Love your sister. If your brother or sister sins, look for them when they've wandered off. Look for them when they wandered off. If your brother or sister sins, love your brother, love your sister, look for them when they've wandered off. Restore them when they've come home. Church, friends, Christians, we're supposed to have short accounts. When a brother and sister in Christ wants to come home, has put their sin behind them, has repented of that sin, and they want to come home, The good shepherd brings them back into the flock. Restore them when they've come home. If your brother or sister sins, love your brother, love your sister. Look for them when they've wandered off. Restore them when they come home. Give them the freedom to choose to do otherwise. Give them the freedom to choose otherwise. If your brother or your sister sins. We're broken people. We're damaged goods. We are all sinners saved by grace. So when your brother or sister sins, you walk through this process. In church family, in prepping this sermon, a humbling wave of conviction comes over me to even attempt to preach this text in some way at you rather than first there being an arrow at me. How can I preach this text? How can I go through this message, this sermon, without searching my own heart? I need to be open and honest with you. If there's anything wicked, anything in me, is there anything I need to ask forgiveness for? Because you should also expect, if your brother or sister sins, that your brother or sister will sin, and that your ministry team leader will sin, and that your small group leader will sin. And if your pastor sins, what do you do? You go through the same process. You walk through it together. As I'm reflecting, as I'm looking at this passage in light of God's word and understanding, I need to confess to you that I do not always get it right. 
particularly from the pulpit. The responsibility of preaching from the pulpit is the responsibility to preach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me, God. And there are times that my illustrations, if you've been here for a while, can get away from me, let's say. And they take away from the original meaning of the text. And it's something I confess to you that I am trying to work on and trying to rein in as it would be. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I'll give you an example. About three, maybe four years ago, I preached a sermon about keeping a laser focus on Christ. Stripping away anything that would keep us away from that laser focus. And up here on the stage, I brought to you a bicycle, and I had training wheels on it, and I started stripping things off of that bicycle to be able to teach and be able to say, when you're teaching a kid how to ride a bicycle, you want to strip away all the things that would keep them from being able to focus on riding their bike. And for years now, I have had many of you call me, text me, let me know how much that sermon meant to you. Do you think anyone wanted to tell me how they have aligned themselves with Christ? They have pulled aside everything else and focused on Christ above all else. No! They learned how to ride a bike. And that's great. But that is not the role. That is not the meaning that the Apostle Paul intended when he wrote to the church in Rome. He was not concerned whether everyone in Rome could ride a bike. He did not want them to be better cyclists. He wanted them to be suffering servants of Jesus Christ. Today's sermon, today's passage about counting sheep, It would be pretty easy to be able to go through this passage and talk about and and desire for reaching the lost souls in our community. But that's not what this passage is about. This passage is about reaching the lost sheep who've gone astray. It's a different sermon. You have to be true to the text. So I confess to you that I don't always come to the pulpit preaching the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But so help me God... I commit to working on that. I also confess to you that I do not always listen well. I can have a one-track mind and a task-oriented schedule that matches my mind. There are always ways that I, I need to be working to keeping the church on task. I need to be working to keep this church in the black. I need to be working to keep this church focused on those who are far from Christ here in western New York. But I also do need to be diligent in my calling to care for the flock, to ensure that I'm patient and gentle in how I correct those who have gone astray. I need to be clear in my communication when I speak to people. I need to be compassionate when I deal with the concerns that you bring to me. And there are far too many times that I have just moved on to the next thing. Some of this happens behind closed doors. You don't always see this. There's some real specific examples that I could give you, but just broadly speaking, uh, you know that we've been in a search process for a family pastor for almost a year now, right at a year now. And there's actually been kind of two phases of that. There was a a search process that we began last spring and then a search process that we began, a kind of 2.0 search process in the fall. And so both of those times, there are, there are other examples, there are times in that where I pivoted too quickly, I moved too quickly and left people behind and really damaged our search process in the process. 
There are times during COVID-19 that I moved quickly for what I felt was the sake of the church, the congregation, things that we needed to do to make sure that we were not putting ourselves in harm's way. And I left people behind oftentimes in doing that. I screw this up. I screw this up. Please forgive me. When you see this in me and when you see this in other brothers and sisters in Christ that are in this room and in our congregation and watching online but part of our fellowship, what do you do? You go to them. You bring someone with you. And then you go to the church. You go to the church. When your elders, your ministry team leaders, your small group leaders, your fellow pew members here as a church... You all need to be and we all need to be faithful to a biblical directive on how to remain unified as the body of Christ. And how do we do that? This is the good news. It can be done. Go to that person. If you don't get the result you're looking for, bring someone with you. Go to the church. Here's the good news. Let's continue reading in verse 18. Truly I tell you, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth can agree about anything, (laughs) no, if you can agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I will be with them. If two or three are gathered. As the band makes their way back up, let's talk about the beauty of these last three verses. And it comes from the idea of the two or three being gathered together. Some of your Bibles will have a note off to the side that will help you reference back. You'll see the reference there is Deuteronomy chapter 19 verse 15 where Moses is setting up the governing structure for the Israelite people. Specifically, this passage is talking about the establishment of sanctuary cities in Israel. Places of refuge where someone has been alleged to have committed a crime, an offense, a wrong to someone else, they would be able to wait there and await a fair and equitable trial. That's what this passage is coming from. Why is it important? Well, because the law required that they would need two to three witnesses to come and corroborate the story. They would need two or three witnesses in favor of the prosecution. They would need two or three witnesses in favor of the defense. When Matthew is writing this passage, he's helping us see when you've got two or three witnesses together, there's something else going on. During his time, as he is writing, there's a requirement in place in order for there to be a, a worship gathering, in order for there to be some type of corporate worship service or a public prayer gathering in the synagogue, there was a required quorum in order to do so. There needed to be ten men present in order for there to be a time of worship. Jesus had just told Peter in Matthew chapter 16. After he pressed Peter, this is how we launched this series. This is what this series is all about. It's why it's called To the Cross. Take up your cross and follow me. He asked Peter, he says, but who do you say that I am? The word on the street is that you are a prophet. Perhaps Moses Perhaps Elijah, maybe even John the Baptist. But you announced, Peter, you are the Christ. 
And in response to that, what does Jesus tell Peter? On this rock, he says, on the rock of your confession of faith that you just made, on this rock I will build my, there's the other reference in Matthew, church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Why? And then he says this same phrase. Because what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever is loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. Where two to three are gathered in my name, Jesus says. They will find community. They will find life. And they will find it in abundance. They will find a place of worship. Defined by this, the very presence of God. How does this happen? How does this happen? Let's put all the pieces together. Let's say I've won you over. That with my argument or with the argument that is here in Scripture, you are prepared to make the choice, the proper choice choice. Let's say now that you have no desire to go to war, but now you're choosing, you're deciding to gently restore. Because that's exactly what Jesus has taught us to do. Great. Wonderful. Let's get started. Get ready. Because it's going to be hard work. It's going to be really, really hard work. And the gates of hell would do all that they could to fight against you. So how will you endure? I said that I don't really fall asleep counting sheep. And I sleep pretty well. But there are some nights that I do lie awake at night, unable to sleep. And it's about this flock. It's about knowing that there are those who are in the middle of something that's going on in their lives, something that is hurting them, something that they are hurting each other. Sheep are biting one another. That'll keep me awake. And my personality, maybe yours is the same, is I must do something about this. I have to do something about this. And that's missing the whole point of this passage. If a little one wanders off, what does Jesus say? If a little one wanders off, we'll go looking for them. He says, but I will be with you. If your brother or sister sins, go after them. Not just once. Go is this continual thing. It's in the plural. Go and keep going and keep going and keep going. If your brother or sister sins, go after them. I will be with you. If two or three are gathered, I will be with you, he says. I will be with you. Every head bowed, every eyes closed. Dear Lord, we love you. We thank you for this text. It's a difficult one to swallow, Lord, but it's what we each need today. Lord, you tell us. You'll be with us always, even to the ends of the earth. And there are so many small and insignificant things that we come up against, and we think it's the end of time. What a small perspective we have. Teach us, Lord, what it means to live in light of you actually being Emmanuel, God with us. If you were here this morning, and you do not know Christ, you do not have a personal relationship with Christ, 
please hear this. If you've heard nothing else that I say, there is no greater example of love than Jesus Christ. He gave his life for you. And he offers it to you as a free gift if you would just accept it. Jesus, I believe that you are love. God is love. And Jesus, you are the tangible connection to that. If you are here this morning, you say, I want to accept that. Simply praying, Jesus, I'm a lost soul and I want to be one of your sheep. If you're here this morning and you're a believer, you need to hear this. There's no greater offense to the unsaved looking world than a church and a people who are unloving and do not demonstrate the love of Christ. Nothing could push them farther away. The bride of Christ is supposed to be the most beautiful thing a person could experience here on earth. If you're here this morning and you know that that's not your heart, you know that you are harboring things in your heart that need to be purged, need to be forgiven. Let God do his restoration work in you today. Dear Jesus, change my heart, transform me, cut away the things that you would take away so that I can actually have a faith like a child. And I could trust, as I've been told maybe for years, that God is with us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.